Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast. The audio recording that follows is a radio interview with Dr. Paul Fleshman by a Winnipeg radio station recorded in February of 2003. The Dhamma Podcast will be updated monthly with additional archives from S.A. Goenka's talks, question and answer sessions, as well as other speakers discussing aspects of Vipassana meditation as taught by S.A. Goenka. This podcast is sponsored by Pariyati, a nonprofit publisher that offers written, audio, and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance to the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information regarding Pariyati, please go to www.pariyati.org. That is www.pariyati.org. For more information on Vipassana meditation, including a schedule of courses offered throughout the world, please see www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org. But it's certainly my pleasure to uh, introduce introduce our guest this morning. Uh, Dr. Paul Fleischmann, medical doctor, is a psychiatrist in private practice in Amherst, Massachusetts. He has taught psychiatry and religion in the School of Medicine at Yale University. His books include Spiritual Aspects of Psychiatric Practice, The Healing Spirit, Explorations in Religion and Psychotherapy, Cultivating Inner Peace, and Karma and Chaos, Collected Essays on Vipassana Meditation. Paul Fleischmann was the 1993 recipient of the American Psychiatric Association Oscar Feister Award, given to a person who has made an important contribution to the humanistic and spiritual side of psychiatric issues. Dr. Fleischmann, welcome to the show. Thank you. Dr. Fleischmann, I'm, I'm just not sure where to start with this topic. At, I know at some point I, I want to talk about how this form of meditation might, might serve people in their lives and their relationship to their stress, ultimately uh, their health. But Vipassana meditation is, is so much bigger than that. Maybe you can get us started here. Can, can, okay. can we talk about the technique? What sure. is Vipassana meditation? Sure. Let me define Vipassana Please. As, uh, so to give clarity as to what it is and maybe also how it differs from other kinds of meditation. Please. The unique qualities of Vipassana are that it's non-sectarian, non-religious. Okay. The second unique quality is that authentic Vipassana is taught entirely for free. It's not a product. It's not a commercial item. It's not for sale. That'll go a long way to alleviating uh, some of the concerns of the skeptics. <laughs> And the question comes up, well, how does it exist? I mean, who is teaching something for free? How does it circulate? And the uh, image I find most helpful, it's something like in the, my younger days, I used to like to hike on the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail is entirely for free. When you hike there, you're not paying anybody. No one's making any profit. And then how does the trail stay open? Well, people who like to hike volunteer their time to maintain the trail. And that's the way Vipassana works. There are people who uh, take to Vipassana, who love it, who continue to practice, and who teach others how to practice. It's a volunteer system that rolls from one person to the next person. If, if it weren't satisfying, if it weren't valuable, it wouldn't continue. And the fact that it continues is a measure of its authenticity. That is, people really love it and want to keep dispensing it. This has been going on for over 2,000 years. Vipassana is about 2,500 years old. No one's ever received a penny for an authentic teaching of Vipassana. There are people in the United States who call themselves Vipassana teachers who charge money for it. Everything in the United States gets changed. <laughs> but the authentic tradition is non-sectarian, 
and for free. Now let's give a little more definition about meditation in general means a focus on something that brings your mind to attention and takes your mind away from all the other things that could be on your mind. Typically, meditations are religious, so the object of attention is some religious vision or some religious mantra or some prayer. Because the Pashan is non-sectarian, not hooked up to any religion, the focus of attention is to, in the beginning, the focus of attention is just simply on breathing. Breathing's for free. Everybody does it. No one can say it's not happening. And there it is. So it gives your mind a new focus, takes you away from all the other things you're paying attention to, and is entirely non-sectarian and acceptable to any person of any religion or new religion. That's just the beginning of the practice, however, and the actual depth of the practice is based upon turning your attention to awareness of the actual real sensations of your body as they arise and fall. At the beginning, this typically means a person is just aware of very obvious sensations, feelings like hunger, uh, some tension in your back, uh, some pleasant uh, feeling of being relaxed. As you develop in Vipassana meditation, you become quite sensitive to and aware of many, many kinds of sensations that are alive in your body. So the best description of Vipassana is Vipassana is a free non-sectarian meditation that's based upon a full awareness of the vitality of life as expressed by the sensations of your body every moment that you're meditating. And the goal of that is to be able to expand that into times where you're not meditating such that the difference between meditation and non-meditation begins to become less clear and you're living a life of vitality and awareness. So it's really something that you try to bring into your daily life. Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm attracted to the uh, simplicity, in a way, uh, of uh, when when I hear people speaking of a passion of meditation and and speaking to some of the meditators. I, I'm attracted by, at a first glance, really how simple the technique is. There's there's not a lot of dogma. There's not a lot of uh, discussion other other than a straightforward breathing technique, and yet. Um, really, there there seems to be so many layers that this can be used and, and benefited on. Okay, well, to expand upon the depth, the description of the technique is so simple that it seems almost simple-minded. But if you are meditating on the sensations of your body, the body and the mind are the same thing. That's obvious because if you chop off my head, I won't have either a mind or a body. Right. So the body and the mind are one. And as you meditate on the sensations of your body, it activates awarenesses of your mind also. So while the focus of meditation is body sensation, the activation of meditation is of mental states also. As you meditate on your body, you bring into awareness many mental states that were previously out of your awareness. So it becomes a unendingly um, reminder of who you are and the complexity of who you are and brings you into full consciousness of all that you're thinking and feeling such that you can adjust your life in thought and feeling to be a better life. So on the one hand, it's just a meditation. On the other hand, it's a guide that gives you awareness of how you want to live, how you're actually living, and bringing your knowledge of the best way to live 
line with how you're actually living every day. You're listening to The Natural Health Show here on 101.5 UMFM. We're in conversation with Dr. Paul Fleischman, the psychiatrist, author, and teacher of Vipassana Meditation. You can reach us here with your questions at 269-8636. That's 269-UMFM. And if you're listening on the World Wide Web this morning, we welcome your comments at naturalhealthshow at hotmail.com. That's naturalhealthshow at hotmail.com. I wanted to go uh, a bit more into this uh, psychosomatic aspect, if I may use that term, in, in Vipassana meditation, and, and that is bodily sensations that we have. D- take us through that a bit further. Step one, it's, it's a consciousness around the breath, uh, paying attention to the breathing. Step two, arising from the body is our awareness of these sensations. Then what do you do? You, you become aware of it, and, and where do you go from there? First, I'll start with a very uh, primitive or simple example, and then I'll use a more complex example. Please. A primitive example is, uh, I'm say I'm meditating, and uh, I think I'm, I'm going to be peaceful and happy, relaxed, but suddenly I notice, geez, I'm really starving. I haven't eaten enough breakfast, or it's getting to be lunchtime, and I feel hunger. Everybody is, That's a sensation everybody's aware of. The first thing that one usually does is to yield to a sensation. Oh, I'm hungry, I'll eat. Or one has an alternative strategy to repress it. No, I'm trying to lose weight. I will just uh, force myself not to be aware of hunger or not to yield to hunger. So typically human life is divided between a reaction to a sensation or repression of a sensation. But Pashna teaches the middle path. You are aware of it because you're meditating and you're keeping your sensations in awareness. You don't repress it. But you're meditating. So you don't get up and immediately yield to it and run to the refrigerator. You're practicing awareness without reactivity. Pure awareness, pure observation, objective observation of a sensation. And that gives you the power to make a decision that's thoughtful and over time. So I'm not repressing my hunger. I'm not running to the refrigerator and yielding to my hunger. Instead, I'm aware and I can make a thoughtful decision about when or where or how much I will eat. I'm no longer the slave of my sensation, nor am I hiding from my sensation. Now, hunger is a very primitive basic mechanism, so that dis- that description I gave is very simple-minded. If we go on to the fact that the mind and body are connected, and every time I think something, there's a body sensation that's connected to that specific thought. Right. And I'm trying to be aware of the sensation, and that means I'm aware also of the thought, but I'm not yielding to it, nor am I repressing it. You're creating a personality type or a way of life that's highly aware, that's not repressed, but that's not impulsive, a full consciousness. So typically we say meditation increases the state of consciousness, and it gives you expanded options to either react or not react to watch, to wait, to observe, and to live a life that's more thoughtful and measured. Yet, it's not repressive or overly controlled, since obviously there are times that one does want to respond to what one's feeling and thinking. So it's an increased expansion of consciousness, choice, and awareness. And breaking that, breaking that cycle of uh, breaking that cycle of always reacting to our, our bodily sensations. Absolutely. Now that becomes much more important when we're dealing with the subtle sensations that may drive people, for example, into an unhappy marriage or a happy marriage or into a career that's fulfilling or unfulfilling. All those complex human thought choices 
are also connected to the way our bodies feel. And when we're cultivating a systematic awareness of our body, then we're also cultivating a systematic awareness of how the choices we make in life do or don't arise out of careful thinking, careful planning, careful awareness of life itself. Dr. Fleshman, I was wondering if you could just take us through a, a very simple uh, meditation uh, if you could just explain how how we'd go about a very simple uh, meditation focusing on on breath. <laughs> well, can, can that be done? No. One of okay. the <laughs> one of the third. We were discussing the hallmarks of vipassana. It's non-sectarian. It's taught for free. It's focus on the sensations of breath and then of the whole body. Another hallmark is this is a, a mature, serious practice for um, people who've got the uh, time and energy to actually take something seriously. So this thing that's happened in the United States that meditation is taught in 15 minutes in a gym, that's quite devaluing. Um, no one would ask you, for example, to teach Spanish in three minutes. Right. Give me three minutes of Spanish. If you want to study Spanish, you have to go to and uh, either visit Mexico, take a class. You need to put some energy into it. So Vipassana cannot be even given. So that, that's why you have typically 10-day it's intensive uh, workshops. Correct. It's taught in 10 days. Anything less than that is kind of demeaning. And uh, a lot of meditation in the United States is taught in that demeaned manner, and we don't support that. I wanted to actually, I, I hope that um, I'll take a moment to, uh, Winnipeggers and Manitobans will be happy to know that there is a Vipassana course coming up that uh, that is 10 days, and I hope to, uh, we'll give out some information about that um, at the end. Maybe you can talk for a moment um your your background in psychiatry. Um, let, let's take another example, if, if we can, and let's let's talk about some of the and let's talk about some of the most common um, disorders and problems that people struggle struggle with in their life from a mental emotional point of view. Let's talk about straightforward anxiety disorder. What um, can vipassana be a useful tool, or what's what's your experience here? Can it be a useful tool in exploring? Uh, uh, a person's anxiety. Okay, great question. Um, mental problems, psychiatric problems, are uh, universal. There's no human being who can say, I have no mental problem. That would be like saying, I have no physical problem. Even if we take a group of supreme athletes, if we take a basketball team, baseball team, young athletes in supreme condition, we notice there's a trainer there, there's some guy with uh, ace bandages and ice, there's a team orthopedist. The healthiest people in the world still need a doctor. And mentally, there's no mind that can cope always very well with every single circumstance that life produces. On the other hand, we don't always rush to a medical doctor every day. We expect to have health maintenance. We expect to have many, many years where we're healthy and free of the need for a doctor. Similarly, mentally, we don't expect to run to a psychiatrist every day. We expect to be able to maintain our mental health Vipassana is not the same thing as the treatment for mental problems. We don't want to be confused with those two trends in meditation that are happening in the West. The two trends are you teach it in three minutes in a gym class after work as if it's just some very superficial, useless uh, gimmick. And the second thing is meditation is not designed to treat either mental or physical disorder. It's designed to create a happy, healthy way of life. However, to create a happy, healthy way of life, of course it definitely impacts upon both physical and mental health. By increased awareness of the choices that you make in life, 
by increased awareness of the vitality of your body, you will be constantly reminded of how to live a good life, how to make the right choices. To the degree that mental illnesses are sometimes driven by extreme biological states, for example, somebody may inherit a gene for schizophrenia or manic depressive illness. These are severe illnesses. We don't say that Vipassana can reverse severe genetic psychiatric disorder. We don't offer a pie in the sky. We're not um, promoting a product, and therefore we have no need to exaggerate claims. But to the extent that anxiety is a universal common phenomenon, there's no person who can say, I lived my whole life and out the end of it I never had a day of anxiety or never had a day of depression. That's absurd. Every human being gets anxious and gets depressed sometimes. And to the extent that we live a healthy, thoughtful, aware, conscious, choiceful life that's focused on peace, meditation, calm, to that extent we will very systematically reduce the amount of anxiety and depression that we have. So if someone is suffering from acute anxiety today, I wouldn't say go and take a Vipassana course. I would say get help with your anxiety. But to the extent that someone is saying, I want to live a life of less anxiety, I would say Vipassana will help you enormously. It will put you on a life path where you'll be making wiser, more mature, more thoughtful, less reactive choices. And that will help reduce some of the chaos and stress that you've been generating for yourself. So Vipassana actually has a very significant anti-anxiety, antidepressant effect, but it's not an acute treatment effect. It's a long-term life strategy effect. You know, um, again, this this uh, this really uh, it appeals to me. There there isn't a there isn't a day that goes by where in practice with with patients we're not talking about two issues. One, either the stress level in someone's life, or two, um, the relationship they have with their stress. Mm. And perhaps distinction. Yeah. And perhaps it's the relationship that people have with their stress um, that really defines more their, their reality, their, their experience of life. And, and I, I, like, um, I like our discussion here in terms of how this can be a tool for helping to explore a person's relationship with their stress, and ultimately that, that's going to uh, define their experience. Yeah, excellently phrased. There are those two parts that you said. One is a, a wisely lived life will have less anxiety and distress, but no one can escape it because no one you know, can just live in a, a little hole on the ground and never face anxiety and distress. And so the second thing is uh, managing it, uh, strategizing around it, learning to relate to it in a wiser way. And uh, definitely that's exactly what Vipassana is designed to do. You, uh, Dr. Fleischman, you have, you have taught Vipassana, and, and maybe you can... Um, it, I know that at, at a first... Again, I'll come back to this. At a first glance, I, I like the simplicity of the meditation, a focus on the breath to start with, and then an awareness of the bodily sensations. But um, it would sound as if that's a very easy thing to do, but maybe you could speak to some of the obstacles, the uh, the wandering of the mind. Uh, for those who haven't tried, uh, you may find it surprisingly difficult to simply calm the mind. Right. Well, that's a good question because, in a way, it really is simple and wonderful. Almost all people who go to a 10-day meditation course and attempt a serious, systematic learning of Vipassana, we have almost 100% uh, satisfaction rate. But meditation, 
natural meditation without any uh, religion and philosophy attached to it is just immediately rewarding for people. And people who try it, almost without exception, say, this was great, I loved it, it changed my life, I value it. And that's why, it, even though it's for free and no one's uh, marketing it and no one's making money on it, it just keeps spreading to different countries and to different people. There's just the immediate experience, like, this is what I've been looking for, I want to calm down, this helps. Right. But, as you pointed out, there's, there's an, uh, almost an infinite degree of skill. And as one progresses, there's the constant confrontation with the fact that one isn't calm, one isn't peaceful, one isn't wise. <laughs> On the contrary, we've been living generally, particularly in our culture today, very scattered and frantic lives. And that scattered, frantic quality is, is reproduced in our mind. When we sit down and close our eyes, instead of being peaceful, right. generally we're scattered and frantic. And the first thing about meditation is learning to focus and learning to let go of the uh, multitasking agendas that we're all overloaded with. And so there's plenty of uh, challenge. Dr. Fleischman, we, may we go to a, an email question here? We'd like to read a couple of them out that we've okay. received. If, uh, if, you have a, if you have a question for Dr. Fleischman here, naturalhealthshow at hotmail.com. That's naturalhealthshow at hotmail.com. For those of you in Winnipeg, 269-8636. That's 269 269- Eight six three six. Doctor Schroeder, do you want to? Yeah, we have an email question here, which is uh, somewhat on the lines of of what we've been uh, just talking about. It's from James. It says, uh, "I find it difficult at times to stay awake if I'm meditating at certain times of the day, especially in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, What is the solution to this?" (laughs) Well. When people go to a 10-day meditation course, one of the reasons we teach Vipassana in a 10-day residential course is that over the course of 10 days, you face all of these things multiple times and learn multiple strategies. Typically, people have difficulty meditating right after a meal. And so in our 10-day courses, we usually have a rest period right after a meal. Typically, people have difficulty meditating late at night. We tend to end our meditation early, 9 p.m., at our courses, but also people fall asleep because they're living lives of chronic exhaustion, sleep deprivation, and so the best uh, solution to that is that person would be wise to be getting a little more sleep mm-hmm. <laughs> and not, mm-hmm. not be living. That's a classic example, by the way, of how meditation serves as a feedback. It's not just a gimmick. You're not just trying to meditate to feel good. You're meditating to get the awareness of your mind and body teaching you how to live better. And the answer to that person is, you need a little more sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Quite quite simply. So could could you take us through, uh, I'm struggling to say a typical person, or maybe that's not the right word for someone that goes through a a 10-day workshop in terms of these these issues of the mind-wandering and um, sleepiness and so forth. Okay. Uh, how, how, How do people typically respond from the beginning to the end? Well, we create a very um, nurturant and safe environment. So the first thing is we make it clear that you're here with a group of volunteers and friends, people who are just here to help you, and uh, you're here to just uh, receive our kindness. And uh, so the atmosphere is, is one of, uh, for, the, for the new student, the atmosphere is one of feeling bathed in a safe and protective environment. And we create an environment which is, uh, private, it's sealed off from the world, and you know you're going to be able to meditate without interruption, and 
Uh, you're not going to get a phone call from your sister or your mother saying they need you to drive them to stop and shop. Right. So we create a proper environment, a proper context. But when people start to meditate, almost the first day, almost everyone either falls asleep, feels restless, starts immediately daydreaming about some big problem that they left over before they came to the meditation course. They uh, have to generate money for their taxes or their son isn't getting good grades in high school or their girlfriend doesn't want to go out with them anymore. Everybody brings a problem, and the first thing that happens is uh, learning how to bring your mind away from these uh, incessant trains of superficial, transient problems that we live with every day and to bring your mind back to the, the fundamental reality of our life, which is we're alive, we're, we're safe, we're well, we're breathing, we're vital, and for a period of time we can let go of our problem-solving. So in the first days, that's why we start with the training just on breath. In the first days, there's a, a, an image that's used. It's like uh, training your dog who's a young puppy. He's wild. He's jumping. He's running around in the grass. He's chasing tennis balls endlessly. And we're training that puppy to come back to us. We say, you know, come back, and we give his name, and we give him a little cracker, we give him a little cookie. We're training a wild animal to be responsive and that's the same thing that happens to our minds. Our minds start out sleepy, problem-solving, worried, planning, strategizing. But we're training it, come on back, just come back to simple reality of breathing. Come on back, come on back. That training goes on repetitively and becomes increasingly effective. So you could say the course has a fairly linear progression from relative agitation and uh, uh, wild mind, puppy mind, back to relatively uh, mature and attentive mind. And hoping to bring that, uh, that focus and that experience into your daily life past the course. Absolutely. The goal of a course is to get out of the course <laughs> and take those skills with you. I say one of the things that most appeals to me about Vipassana, it gives you a tool bag for living that you take home with you. No one else owns Vipassana. You own it. Now, you've, uh, may I just put one more email question to you sure. here? And I, I think, and I'm saying this just, I'm reading this one out just for emphasis because I think you've covered this already. And it's an email by Robert, and uh, it reads, uh, uh, Can you be a Christian and do this meditation? Is it prayer? Yeah, absolutely. It's non sectarian, it's secular, it has nothing to do with uh, any belief structure. It is the teaching of the Buddha, but it's definitely not Buddhism. I don't call myself a Buddhist. I've been a Vipassana meditator for about 30 years, and I don't call myself a Buddhist. We have, in the United States, obviously, the highest percent of people coming are Christian. In India, uh, there are Christian uh, seminaries that require that people take Vipassana as part of their training. It's a mental training, a spiritual training. It's not a religious training, so the answer is absolutely. You know, the uh, this is interesting. Speaking about India, there's... Uh, um in other parts of the world, this is a far more uh, widespread technique. Um, I, yeah. I think I'd understood, uh, well, you, did, did I understand correctly? You, you yourself have just uh, I just got back from India. From, a, from quite an extensive uh, Yes, program. I was thinking, uh, we don't want to confuse people, but say if you've been meditating for some long period of time, I took a 30-day course, a rare opportunity. It's hard to get away for that period of time. Right. And it's not an introduction. It's for people who are already comfortable in the technique. So I was meditating for 30 days in India. I just got back about two, three days ago. In India, the practice is much more widespread. But actually, the practice has spread all over the world. Yes. Yeah. 
Was it? Uh, this is a couple points I found interesting. I, I think I'd understood as well that uh, in India, for example, um, that some employers will give their uh, employees leave of absence to attend a uh, vipassana meditation retreat. That's true. And uh, the other is, I think vipassana meditation is used uh, within the prison sense, uh, yes. system. There are, and in, 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 uh, we don't want to say this is so widespread, but there are some commercial establishments that have found. It's so valuable to have your employees focused, calm, right. <laughs> non-reactive, that it actually it costs the company less to pay them, send them away for 10 days and pay them, than to have them be scattered, dysfunctional employees. Now, in some of the legal systems of India, the same thing has been found. It's such a uh, valuable thing to have your the people on your staff well-trained in mental calm and equanimity that it pays to have them go to these professional courses. So police, there's been courses for police, there's been courses for prison guards and prison officials, and there's been courses for prisoners. But courses for prisoners are by no means limited to India. The United States has had quite a few. In, oh, is uh, that right? Yeah, in Seattle and in Alabama, there have been, in Seattle there were many, I don't know, 15, 20 courses for prisoners in the uh, state prison system. And in Alabama, there's been a handful, and uh, it seems to be spreading. It will spread. The reason is, two reasons. One is, it's prisoners are people. We're all people. Why shouldn't they have this? It's not, right. they know it's for free. It doesn't cost the prison system anything. But the prison systems find it helpful. Why have violent, agitated people? Why not have a little more calm and focused people? So actually, it's been found to be very, uh, really quite a, a moving and uh, meaningful experience. Many prisoners find new uh, new avenue to live well isn't that uh, isn't that interesting ha- have they done any studies at all in yes. the, w- with it in terms of less violent uh, yes. activity yeah studies have been done extensively in India uh-huh. that have shown less violent activity within a prison and of course there's some question well would that work in America that's India do the studies generalize so now there's a big study going on uh, under the guidance of the university Washington in Seattle on a series of prison courses that were given in prisons in Seattle, and uh, the data isn't out yet. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, Dr. Fleischman, I'd, I'd sure like to thank you for taking the time to join us here on the Natural Health Show. You've been uh, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very Great. much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.